listening to Ohio V, The World, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey guys, welcome to episode 4 of Ohio vs. the World, Ohio History Podcast. And today guys, we're getting nautical. Cue the wave noises. We're going to take a trip back over 200 years. We're going to hit the high seas. Well, the high seas of Lake Erie. Last summer I got married. We were married at the Ohio State House in Columbus. Uh, we got married in the rotunda. A couple hundred people, uh, friends and family. And I'm watching the bridesmaids come up and the ring bears. And I'll be honest, I was nervous. Um, And I start focusing on this painting. There's this giant painting. There's one painting on the wall, the massive rotunda at the State House. And it's a painting of Oliver Hazard Perry. And as I'm waiting to to marry Mrs. Ohio versus the world, I'm looking at this painting. It's enormous. And it looks like like the famous Lutz painting of of George Washington crossing the Delaware. Um, Perry... He's out in Lake Erie, he's in a rowboat, he's surrounded by his men, he's standing up, there's a giant battle raging behind him, uh, and he's got this big flag draped over his shoulder. It's the only painting on the wall in the main room of the Ohio State House, and it's the Battle of Lake Erie. September 10th, 1813, when Ohio beat the British Empire. The only time an entire British naval squadron was lost or surrendered, the entire squadron. The British Navy, which especially at this time, was known to be the best in the world and had been known to be the best in the world for a few hundred years. And the battle took place in Ohio almost 204 years ago. The battle took place off the, sh- off the shores of Putten Bay, South Bass Island. If you go to Putten Bay today, it's, a, it's almost like our, our Key West in, in Ohio. It's, there's lines of bars, it's right on the water. It's an island off the coast of, uh, of the Sandusky Bay. You have to take a ferry out there. Um, and it's really become a, a party headquarters, a vacation headquarters for Ohioans and people in the region. And if you walk around Putin Bay or you drive a golf cart around for the weekend, you'll see a flag everywhere you look. It's almost the flag of, of, of Putin Bay. It's a navy blue flag with white, white lettering that says, don't give up the ship. Don't give up the ship is basically Oliver Hazard Perry. That was his, his personal flag, his, his battleship, his flagship's flag. And it comes from a, a famous statement by one of his friends, James Lawrence, a fellow sailor, a fellow officer who was killed earlier that summer in June 1813 in a battle against the British. And he said to his men, do not give up the ship. It's a moment of defeat because ultimately they did give up the ship. His, the USS Chesapeake was boarded shortly after this. Lawrence dies, and the ship was taken by the British Navy. Don't give up the ship became the U.S. Navy's early slogan. It was like, uh, remember the Alamo, uh, remember the Maine. It was, it was their battle cry. And it was made famous thanks to our victory on Lake Erie against the British. 
and that victory was caused by Ohio's first real national hero. Ohio's first national hero was Oliver Hazard Perry. Commodore Perry, as he was known. Our beer of the episode today, we have a beer every episode while we record, is Great Lake Brewing Co.'s uh, Commodore Perry. It's an English-style IPA, 7.5%. Um, it's a great beer. I've been drinking it for years. Um, it's got a picture of Commodore Perry and the lake in the background, the ships. Um, it's one of their year-round brews. There's only four or five. Um, and Great Lakes Brewing Company is probably the largest, most popular uh, brewer here in the state of Ohio. It's based out of Cleveland. You can go visit their their tap room and restaurant um, in Ohio City, uh, just west of downtown Cleveland, uh, right off of West 25th Street. Been there a number of times. It's a great place. So I, I encourage you, anyone who's visiting Cleveland or visiting Ohio to, to go check it out. But today we're going to talk about the namesake of this English style IPA. We'll be joined by Jason Anderson, a history teacher in Akron at Archbishop Hoban, who has made documentary films about 1812, um, has done a lot to preserve Ohio history, and is just incredibly knowledgeable. He's the author of a, of a long essay on the topic called The Tiger on the Lake. We'll talk with Jason about the Battle of Lake Erie. So we're going to hit the Wayback Machine. We're going to go back 204 years to the shores of Lake Erie to show you how Ohio defeated the British Empire. starts nine years after Ohio becomes a state. And it was the United States who declared war on the British. On May 11th, 1812, President Madison asked the Congress, and the Congress gave him a declaration of war against the British Empire. Why did we want a declaration of war? The British were busy in the continent. They were fighting the Napoleonic Wars, and they began a process known as impressment. An impressment was... In order to get more sailors, more ships that they could throw into the fight, and more supplies, they would board American ships, not just those in the Atlantic Ocean, those all over. And American ships, and they would basically kidnap or impress into service sailors. They would claim that these were um, you know, British deserters, but most of them that, that were kidnapped and impressed and taken to the war theaters were American sailors, merchant sailors. Um, and the impressment policy became a huge problem for President Madison. But the British, they felt they had no choice. They also uh, had established a blockade of the U.S. coastline. Obviously, this was a an affront to, to, to the country. Madison was shipping some supplies to Napoleon. We certainly were not nearly as friendly as we are now with the British. Um, the French had been a a fellow uh, state that had that had thrown off the yoke of of kings and queens and monarchies, and we were supplying the French army with some supplies. The British suddenly set up a blockade of the U.S. coastline. They're stopping our ships. They're impressing our soldiers, and eventually it all became too much. Madison, who's up for re-election, the fourth president in 1812, decides to ask Congress for a declaration of war. Which was a silly notion, considering at the time, 
there was really no U.S. Army. It was just basically a organized militia. Um, they had 1,000 ships in the British Navy, and we had 20 ships. The U.S. Navy had 20, 20 ships to its entire fleet. Obviously, we would build more and and buy more off off of citizens and and put guns on them in the years to follow. But the War of eighteen twelve, we were not ready for, and the fact that we, I would never say that we won the War of eighteen twelve. It was certainly a stalemate, but the fact that we were not blown out of out of the water, um, by the British has a lot to do with Oliver Hazard Perry's victory in in September of eighteen thirteen. We were mismatched. Not only was the British Army and Navy in the fight against the Americans, but also they had formed a a confederacy with the American Indians, the tribes led by Tecumseh, who had allied all of these different tribes together. They joined the British because they saw it as their only chance to get their land back, to push back against the American settlers in the West, in Ohio, in Michigan, in Indiana, places that the Indians had once owned. Like I said, Ohio's only been a state for nine years. So the Indians, led by Tecumseh, joined the British Army. And also there were the Canadians. This really was a war. The Canadians saw it's a war of Canadian independence. It's the major war that's celebrated much more in Canada than it is here in America. The Canadians felt that they that the Americans were trying to take their lands. And in many ways we were. We crossed that border, that border north of Lake Erie. Uh, which was an area known as Upper Canada. But we were mismatched. We were against the, the British, the American Native Americans, I should say, and the Canadians, who were British subjects, but were also very determined fighters. The first year of the war, the summer of 1812 and 1813, were not very good for the Americans. It was a stalemate at best. We had We didn't have the resources. We didn't have the men. We didn't have the training. And if anything, we were losing ground to the British and their and their allies. We sat down with Jason to talk about the early parts of this war, why the Great Lakes were so important and so vital to American military and British military interests in the War of 1812. The Great Lakes and the major rivers are the highways of the early 19th century. Um, we're sitting here right on the edge of route. Uh, 22476 and anyone that travels on the major highways by car today imagine those being the waterways uh, 100 years ago 200 years ago and so the great lakes were vitally important to anyone who wanted to occupy and control um, the area of what what's known as upper canada now upper canada is the area directly north of lake erie and anyone that controls the the, the area around lake ontario lake erie controls all of the traffic, trade, uh, imports, exports, military maneuvers in this area of Ohio, in the northern part of Ohio, Michigan, uh, areas even even westward into the, into the old Northwest Territory. So the Great Lakes are vitally, vitally important. So General Harrison, William Henry Harrison, he's the, the, mili- the main army general in the old Northwest at this time, what is kind of now Northwest Ohio, uh, Toledo, and, and in the area south, um, kind of what was Harrison's objective in 1813, and how was Lake Erie so essential to achieving those goals? William Henry Harrison is, is looking to the areas around what is now Michigan and up into Lake Michigan, that area, up further up into the peninsula, 
And by 1813, I, I have to laugh as, as I teach this with my students, and we kind of keep a tally score in 1812 and 1813, um, I have to constantly remind them who declared war because our tally score uh, isn't so good. In 1812, we win nothing in Upper Canada. Uh, in this area that we're, we're talking about right now. In 1813, we don't do much better, especially early in 1813. So William Henry Harrison is looking to reclaim Fort Detroit, uh, areas around Fort Molden, just north of Lake Erie. You know, how can we regain these areas that the British have taken? Some of these areas the British have taken by great force, others they've taken because the Americans looked, surrendered, and, and fled. Um, so there's there's a great desire in General Harrison to reclaim and kind of reassert ourselves in this war, and especially in Upper Canada, the area around Michigan. But in the summer of 1813, the Americans start to have some success in northwest Ohio. Against the Indians and against some British forces, General William Henry Harrison, who would later become our ninth president from North Bend, Ohio, the first Ohio president. General Harrison, then as a young man, is having some success. He wants to take the attack across the lakes. He wants to take it into Michigan, to Fort Detroit, into Upper Canada and places like Amherstburg. But he can't do that if the British still control Lake Erie. Enter Oliver Hazard Perry. Commodore Perry comes to the Great Lakes in the summer of 1813. He's asked for the transfer, and it is his naval genius, his luck, the Perry luck, as they call it, that leads us to victory not only in the Great Lakes, but throughout the rest of 1813 in Upper Canada that helps the United States get at least a negotiated peace, the Treaty of Ghent in 1814. Oliver Hazard Perry is from Rhode Island, uh, so he is an East Coast uh, naval commander, uh, has been in the Navy for a while, has a lot of good friends in the in this young navy of the United States, but in 1813 there's not a lot of naval action on the coast. Uh, his very very good friend uh, Commodore uh, Lawrence had died earlier. Uh, really really impacted Oliver Hazard Perry. Uh, we see a lot of the impact of Lawrence later in the Battle of Lake Erie itself. Um, but the action just isn't there. He's a young guy. He wants, he wants in on the fight. And so he actually writes to the Secretary of the Navy and asks for a transfer. He sees the Great Lakes uh, for the importance that they are. He sees that there is action on the Great Lakes. Um, there's a lot of action on Lake Ontario. There's action starting to build up on Lake Erie. And he wants in on it. And the Secretary of the Navy does grant him his transfer. And sometimes he and the Secretary of the Navy lock horns. Is that Chauncey? Yes. And um, that causes problems. He wants more men. He wants more supplies because they're, they're just not there. And the Secretary of the Navy kind of uh, uh, keeps him in his place, reminds him that he's not the only naval commander in the entire United States that's, that's for wanting of supplies. Um, and Perry, I think, does a really great job with what he has with the men and the type of men that uh, that fight with him the supplies that are at his disposal at Presque Isle to build his squadron here um, and, I, and I also think that Perry does a really great job 
uh, with egos and he's got a lot of those to deal with and we can talk about that in a little bit I'm sure but um, I think he was the right man for this pivotal time I, I don't think that we would have had the same outcome if it wouldn't have been Oliver Hazard Perry here uh, on Lake Erie. enters the Western Theater. He gets his transfer, and he's sent to Presque Isle, which is the U.S. shipyard, the Navy shipyard, and begins building ships. It's an incredible process. It's a difficult process here in Presque Isle, which is basically Erie, Pennsylvania at the time. And Perry knows that time is short. He needs to get a fleet up and running before the British track him down, and he needs to engage the British in a decisive battle on Lake Erie to establish dominance of what they now call in Cleveland the North Coast. Perry's transferred to the West, and he finds himself at Presque Isle, which is now Erie, Pennsylvania, in 1813, and he's overseeing the construction of, of the fleet, of the Lake of the Lake Erie fleet, the Great Lakes fleet. Um, talk about Perry in 1813 and the problems, some of the problems he faces in the summer at Presque Isle, um, and Presque Isle itself, which, like I said, is now Erie, Pennsylvania. Erie, Pennsylvania is a very small town in 1813. But its location is key. It's kind of in this little pocket of eastern Lake Erie, southeastern Lake Erie. Um, and if you can imagine, I'll, I'll try to visually create this picture for you. If you can imagine a letter C, Presque Isle is at the bottom of the letter C. And there is um, an island essentially that kind of warps out up into the lake and back down creating this really perfect inner harbor area from Lake Erie and the town of, of Erie, Presque Isle. So Oliver Hazard Perry has this natural protective barrier if you will with a very small opening to the eastern end of Presque Isle which allows ships and shipping from the harbor out into the Great Lake. Um, one of the one of the well, there are two major things that I think that Oliver Hazard Perry is pressed with the most. Number one is supplies. He has been charged with creating an entire squadron. Uh, he does get some ships from Lake Ontario uh, early on in, in 1813, but his major objective is to build these Great Lake ships. Now, there's one thing to keep in mind: the ships that are made on the Great Lakes are not ocean-going vessels, so they are they're shallow draft. Um, but you need wood, you need iron, you need all of the equipment, you need rope. Where's he getting this from? I mean, I, I find it amazing to imagine Perry building these ships and his men building these ships out of green oak. We briefly turn our attention to the British Navy in the region. The British Navy, Her Majesty's Royal Navy, the strongest navy in the world, ever since the Spanish Armada was defeated in 1588. The British prided themselves on their navy, the same navy that only a few years earlier had defeated Napoleon's forces at Trafalgar. In 1805, the great naval battle in which Horatio Nelson 
had defeated the French forces and basically staved off a Napoleonic invasion of the British Isles. One of Nelson's officers would become Oliver Hazard Perry's opposing commander, and that is Captain Robert Barclay. Barclay comes over from the European theater, and he is a respected sailor. He only has one arm, which he lost in Trafalgar, and Barclay is a legit sailor. He's a great captain, and he's someone that obviously Perry knows will be a formidable adversary on Lake Erie. Commodore Barclay is a really awesome individual in this in this story. And sometimes I, I kind of play the armchair historian and wonder what would have happened if Perry wouldn't have won this battle. How would Barclay have transferred Upper Canada, transformed Upper Canada into something very different? Um, Barclay is a seasoned naval officer, as you mentioned. Barclay is alongside Commodore Horatio Nelson at the Battle of Trafalgar. Uh, the, the, the Battle of Trafalgar, Nelson is killed, and Barclay loses an arm. So it's kind of an ironic change of position of these two men. So Barclay is sent over there to control these Great Lakes, and he has a squadron of his own. Uh, the Detroit and the Queen Charlotte are these large uh, Lake Erie ships that are built around the area around Detroit and Fort Molden to protect the British investments and British interests here. But just as Oliver Hazard Perry has very little, so does Barclay. Just because Barclay is in control of the Great Lakes currently, and just because Barclay is in control of Fort Molden, Fort Detroit, and the British occupy that area, doesn't mean it's a given that it's always going to stay with him. And one of the things that Barclay quickly writes about is, we're running out of food. My men are on... Uh, partial rations. And he's writing about this you know, well before the September battle in 1813. Let's take a second to talk about Perry's luck. It's a term that's used to describe Oliver Hazard Perry and how he was so lucky any little change, conditions, or happenstance could have led to Perry's ultimate demise. The loss of his naval squadron on Lake Erie and could have led to British domination of the area of Upper Canada, Michigan, Detroit, and could have ultimately changed the boundaries of, of our entire nation in the War of 1812. Perry's luck, we'll see it multiple times, but the first time we'll really see it is at Presque Isle. The British know that he's there. It's not a, it's not a very well-kept secret that the Americans are building ships, that they are amassing a force in Erie, Pennsylvania, and the British are out looking for them, and they're on their way. And it's here at Presque Isle that we see the first example, the ultimate example of Perry's luck. Talk about this first instance of Perry's luck, a term that's kind of used uh, to discuss his good fortune on the high seas. Talk about how he gets the ships out of out of Presque Isle, basically in the nick of time. Perry's luck is, there, there's several occasions or episodes of this uh, in the summer of 1813 and, and actually of the day of the battle itself in September. Uh, when Perry's squadron, his ships are, cr- are constructed and built in Presque Isle, uh, the Niagara and the Lawrence are the two major uh, ships, the Lawrence being his flagship named after his, his late friend, uh, in the in the Navy on the East Coast, they're too big. They can't get out of the sandbar area. There's a sandbar 
opening between the harbor itself and the Great Lake. Perry's ships are too low in the water. So imagine you have your squadron there, your two major ships with the largest number of guns, your flagship being one of them, can't get out. They're stuck. In the meantime, you've gotten word, you know that Commodore Barclay's British squadron is patrolling the lake looking for you. He's coming towards Presque Isle. Perry's got to do something, and he's got to do something very fast. The smaller ships of his squadron can get out, but the Lawrence and Ni- Niagara cannot. So what Perry has to do is, number one, unload everything. Cannons, casks of water, supplies, rope, extra um, rigging. I mean, you could, every, anything you could have that you could move off the ship, cannonballs, powder, to lighten the ship to let it rise in the water. That's not enough. So Perry is looking at this, and he's like, now what do we do? So they construct these boxes called camels. So picture large wooden boxes that you can sink in the water on each side of the ship. And then you put a large log on top of the boxes, but underneath the Lawrence and the Niagara. So if you can pump the water out of these boxes that are sealed, the boxes begin to rise. And when the boxes rise, they elevate the ship just a little bit. So in the meantime, you have crews of sailors on rowboats, on longboats, in front of the Niagara and the Lawrence, rowing with all their might to get this ship over the sandbar inches at a time. When the ship gets stuck again, they flood these camels, they go back underwater, the ship settles a little bit more, they move the camels again, pump the water out, rise the ship, inches more, it is eked over the sandbar. It takes almost 24 hours to get the Niagara over the sandbar. The Lawrence was a little bit easier, but they get them over. Um, Here's the luck part. While Perry's men are breaking their backs, getting their ships over the sandbar. Where they would be sitting ducks if if Barkley came upon them. Because they have have nothing on them. You have this nice, really good-looking wooden ship with no cannons, no shot, no nothing. They're, they're just holes. In the meantime, Barclay is invited to a dinner in Upper Canada, just north and a little bit to the west of Presque Isle, on the other side of the lake. And he takes the invitation. And now some historians say, was this a legitimate kind of liaison that Barclay and his men um, accepted? Was this woman that invited them a, an American sympathizer, knowing the condition that Perry and his men was in? Um, I'm not quite sure. I'll, I'll go with the second. It, it makes for a neat addition to the story for sure. But at any rate, Barkley and his men leave. They turn. They go up to this, uh, this, this woman's home. They enjoy the dinner. And that buys Perry just enough badly needed time to get the ships over, had them refitted, and now the entire squadron of the Americans is over the sandbar and on the lake itself. Perry sets up shop at Putin Bay. He brings his entire squadron there, his other commanders, his sailors, he meets with General Harrison. He even takes a fight to Fort Malden. He's repulsed by, by the batteries on, on the shore. 
and he meets with Harrison to discuss the game plan, and he meets with his captains and his generals to discuss the game plan. And while there, he lays out a flag that he had someone make for him in Presque Isle. He had someone put together a giant 10-foot blue and white flag that says, don't give up the ship, for his friend James Lawrence, who died after being wounded as the captain of the USS Chesapeake in June of 1813. But the men see this flag. Perry says, this will be our flagship's flag, and when you see it, you will know that it is time to fight. You will know that we have found the British, and we must take the battle to them. The other amazing thing that happens on this, on this evening at this meeting is that he unfolds this massive battle flag, this famous don't give up the ship flag. And everyone is in awe of this huge blue wool bunting flag. It's a 10-foot flag. Absolutely. And, it, and this is the flag with the slogan on it of his dying friend, Commodore Lawrence, again, who his flagship is named after. Lawrence was killed earlier in the war. And as he is killed on board his ship, he gives a famous quote, don't give up the ship, fight her till she sinks. And so the order is given that as soon as the British squadron is sighted the next morning on September 10th, the battle flag will be raised above the Lawrence and everyone is to close distance and engage the enemy. So at 10 o'clock on September 13th, I'm sorry, 10 o'clock on September 10th, um, the American squadron sights the British squadron. And the sail ho cry goes out, and the great battle flag goes above Perry's battle, uh, Victor, I'm sorry, goes above Perry's uh, flagship. And when the flag is raised, it is written that sailors and all of the other ships of the American squadron let out a huge cheer of huzzah because they all knew what that phrase stood for. Every one of them knew who Lawrence was and knew why. Uh, Perry had named his flagship this and had this uh, quote on his battle flag. And you still see that flag all over Putin Bay uh, and Sandusky and, and, and that entire region of Ohio today. Right. So in the morning of September 10th, the British fleet is seen. Perry and his nine ships take to the lake, the British with their six ships. So this idea that, you know, I remember the first time I ever went to the Victory Monument and the guy said, you know, it's such an upset that we were able to beat the British Navy, but we had more ships than them. But it's not that simple, the fact that we had three more ships. Talk about how the two sides were actually compared um, and, and why it was at least an even fight, I would say, if not uh, tilted in the British favor. This kind of goes back to another one of Perry's luck stories as well. Um, although Perry does outnumber Barkley quite a bit, on the on the battle and the Battle of Lake Erie, on the Great Lakes, um, the British ships have long-range guns. These guns can fire up to a mile distance. Perry's ships all have short-range guns and carronades, and a carronade is kind of a short, stubby cannon that is absolutely devastating at close range. A little cannon, yeah. absolutely, but it can do little to nothing long range. So if the British, and this is, this is Barclay's big goal here, if we are going to engage Perry in the American fleet, Barclay has to keep the Americans at a distance. If he can keep Perry and the American squadron at arm's length, he can devastate them. And all that Perry and his squadron can do is try to get as close as possible while knowing that they have a long distance under fire before they can ever return fire. 
And this is a this is a big, big, big problem early on with the battle itself. On the night of September 9th, Perry knows the battle's imminent. They began to discuss the battle plans of what they believe the British squadron looks like based on intelligence. And they decided to match up ship for ship. And his his ship, the Lawrence, will be in the lead, the flagship. With all the other ships behind it, including the other, the second largest ship they built at Presque Isle, the Niagara, which will be captained by Captain James Elliott, Jesse Elliott. They all meet on board below deck by candlelight on the USS Lawrence. Perry goes to bed that night, knowing that likely battle will come in the morning, the morning of September 10th. By the next day, Perry will become one of the most famous men in United States naval history. At 10 a.m. that morning of September 10, 1813, the call of Sail Ho cries out, the British Navy has been spotted, and they're sailing directly at Perry's men off the shores of Putten Bay. The Battle of Lake Erie is underway. So the battle begins, and the wind is against Perry. Um, but again, we have, you know, kind of a an instance of, of Perry's luck, and the wind changes, and it changes. And how does it change, and how does it help Perry get closer? Sure. As the battle begins, if you can picture the wind coming out of the northwest, sweeping down across Lake Erie in that direction, so the British have the weather in their favor. So they can sail. They're coming out of the Northwest. Exactly. So they can sail close, as close as they need to get to the American squadron. The American squadron coming from the area of Putin Bay has to sail into the wind. So if you know anything about sailing, you, don't, you just don't sail straight into the wind. You have to make a zigzag Z pattern um, tacking, as they call it, going from side to side and attack with these big ships, the Niagara and the Lawrence, it is a lot of work. Uh, if you happen to get a chance to go to Erie, Pennsylvania today and take a day sail on the Niagara, they do tack. And it is a great thing to see these men get the ship into position to sail into the wind. Now remember, while Perry's men are tacking to get as close as they can to the British, the British are firing at them. And the, the Americans are in range. The Americans had to tack into the wind for a long time under fire before, and here's the, 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 the second part of Perry's luck here, the wind changes. Now the wind shifts and it turns the opposite direction. And that gives Perry and the American squadron what's called the weather gauge. They now have the wind behind them. And now they can quickly, or at least a little bit quicker than they were, come up upon the British squadron. But you've got to remember... Close that distance. Absolutely. But they're still under fire from these devastating long guns the whole time they're doing this. So the wind changes. The Lawrence is ravaged. It's taken the brunt of the fire. The other, what I would consider large or flagship, if there was a second one, the Niagara, 
being captained by by Elliot, uh, Perry notices that it's lagging behind. It's outside of the range of British fire and certainly outside the range of any damage it could do to the British. So the Lawrence has, at this point, almost no working guns. It has, you, I think you told me, one officer who isn't wounded at that time. And Perry knows that he has to leave the ship. It's no longer uh, a fighting ship. It's, it's basically just a, a non-armed ship. It's been destroyed by the British at such a at such a devastating rate. And we look and see another instance of Perry's luck. This, you know, iconic picture, like I told you at the State House where I got married, of Perry sailing, leaving the Lawrence, taking, does he take the flag with him? Uh, this, is, this is probably the most amazing part of the whole battle. Uh, yes, he does. Um, what happens is, again, as they're as they closing the distance, half cable's distance, this is the order that Commodore Perry has given to all of his commanders. They all know this. So Perry has his ships in line, and as Perry and the first several ships with him get close, the Niagara, which was an equal to the Lawrence in size, doesn't come up. The British see this, and the British too were preparing, okay, we are going to fight ship to ship, and if the Niagara isn't closing the distance, all of the American ships behind the Niagara can't get around the Niagara. They have to stay behind the Niagara in order. They have to follow their orders as well. So there's a great distance that is this breach between Perry and his few ships in the front of the line and the Niagara of Jesse Duncan Elliott. So the British turn all of their attention to this one large ship of prey, which is the Lawrence. And they pour a devastating fire into the Lawrence. The deck is coated in blood, 80-some percent casualty rate above on the Niagara. There is not one gun on the Niagara left. On, in the, any, on the Lawrence. Or I'm sorry, on the Lawrence, excuse me. On the Lawrence that is left in any condition to fire. Um, and Perry is faced with a great dilemma. He sees, and so do the men on board the Lawrence, they see that the Niagara is not coming up in battle. And some actually write after the battle that it appeared that the Niagara was actually turning away, that she was not coming up to their aid. So imagine being a sailor on the Lawrence and all the other smaller ships around the Lawrence watching this, waiting for their comrades, their, their, their parts to come up and help them, and it looks as if Jesse Duncan Elliott's ship is turning away. So at this point, Perry has a, a major decision to make. If he takes down the American flag on the Lawrence, that means that he has struck his colors. His colors have been struck, stricken, excuse me, and the battle's over. He's, he's surrendered. So he can't do that. That's not the kind of cloth that Oliver Hazard Perry is cut from. So what Oliver Hazard Perry decides to do, he gets with Lieutenant Yarnell, who is the only other officer on the Lawrence that is not wounded, and they, they discuss what to do. They lower a long boat on the opposite side, the boat that is not being fired upon. He takes down the battle flag, the don't give up the ship flag, gets a crew of men that are capable of rowing this long boat, and he instructs Lieutenant Yarnell, do not strike the American flag. So technically, the Lawrence remains the flagship, even though it can't fire. And the Lawrence begins to drift out of the battle. So in the meantime, Oliver Hazard Perry, on this longboat, standing, I mean, picture this, he's standing almost the entire time, 
the great don't give up the ship flag draped over his shoulder, is being rowed from the Lawrence to the Niagara. And taking heavy fire. Absolutely, because in the meantime, Commodore Barclay on the British side, who has also received more severe wounds, one being his one good remaining shoulder, instructs all of his British squadron to fire on this small rowboat out in the middle of the Great Lake. As soon as he gives this order, he goes below deck to be operated on because he's in very bad shape at the time. So here's Oliver Hazard Perry standing for the majority of this of this trip to the Niagara, being fired upon by these long-range guns. And this is amazing. Close the distance, the winds at their back out of the south out of the southeast, and the battle is joined. And it's here that Perry and his sailors turn the tide of the war. They turn the tide and win the Battle of Lake Erie in the next few minutes. And ultimately help the United States gain control of Upper Canada, of northern Ohio, and Michigan. So the British run out of luck also. They, they fail to, to register that knockout blow to Perry and his squadron. They bring up the Niagara, and the Queen Charlotte and the Detroit, I believe, become entangled. Talk about how these two sh- this is almost the, the turning point of the battle, if not Perry making it to Niagara and bringing up the force. The British, their, their fortunes change also moments later. And this is, this is another great scene. You could, this would make, I think, an amazing movie, if anyone ever, ever wants to make this battle into a movie. As... Commodore Barkley is taken below deck to be uh, taken care of for his wounds to be addressed. He hands command over to his second-in-command. And if you can picture the battleships that the British have been firing off of, that they've been using, they've only been using guns on one side of the ship for the entirety of this battle. The guns on the opposite side of the ships have not been engaged at all. So the idea was if we can swing the ships we can use these fresh guns against the Americans that are coming up. It's almost like having a, a new ship. Absolutely. As they make this nautical turn, the two great British ships get entangled in their rigging, and they're stuck. They literally cannot get out. This is the opportunity that Perry is waiting for. So as these two ships are, I mean, there are sailors climbing the rigging, trying, trying to cut the rigging free, here comes the Niagara and all the rest of the American squadron in line. Now there's a gap in the British line, and Perry, on board the Niagara, sails right between the British ships and what is historically known as Perry splitting the line. So here's the American squadron sailing straight through this gap, and instead of one broadside, Perry gives a double broadside on both sides, raking fire 
on all of the British ships. And one of the British ships attempts to flee, the Chippewa, but it is uh, captured and brought back. So at the end of all of this, all of the American ships have captured all of the British squadron. And what makes this really awesome is that this is the only time in the history of the world that an entire British squadron surrenders entirely. Usually there's some that get away and make it for another day. At the Battle of Lake Erie on September 10th, 1813, Perry accepts the surrender of every single one of Commodore Barclay's squadron. And on September 10th, after defeating the British fleet in the Battle of Lake Erie, Oliver Hazard Perry, commander of the American fleet, dispatches one of the most famous messages in military history. In writing to Major General William Henry Harrison, he says, Dear General, we have met the enemy, and they are ours. Two ships, two brigs, one schooner, and one sloop. Yours with great respect and esteem, O.H. Perry. So the Americans control the lake. The Americans control basically the all the waterways leading to Upper Canada. And they, Harrison decides to make his attack there. Um, discuss Amherstburg and, and the Battle of the Thames, um, which was caused by the success that we have um, at the Battle of Lake Erie. And, and Perry actually ferries Harrison's troops across the lake into the, into the theater of Upper Canada. And America has now expanded the attack and, and starts to overcome some of those losses in 1812 and 1813. Exactly. As soon as the battle is over, uh, Commodore Perry returns to the Lawrence. He makes the Lawrence his flagship again, and the deck of the ship is covered in blood. Uh, it, it, is a, it is a disaster. But that is the ship that he will accept the surrender of Commodore Barclay uh, on. This is very important to him. And Barclay uh, is very, very grateful for the humanitarian effort that Perry gives to him and his men. Uh, Perry sees that the British sailors who are wounded are taken care of. Uh, he helps to transport the British sailors back to the area around Sandusky. And some of the ships are in such bad shape when some of the British ships, which are towed back to Sandusky, reach Sandusky, um, their masts literally roll over. They fall off. They're in such bad shape. And Perry and Harrison have this understanding that once the squadron of Barclays is taken care of, we can now go that next step. So they decide that in early October that, that Perry will transport Harrison's ground troops to the area around Amherstburg, just below Detroit, and Fort Molden in that area of uh, just above, Nor uh, above Lake Erie. And there is a great battle there, more, most commonly called the Battle of the Thames. And this battle is important for a couple reasons. Number one, it begins to roll up the British uh, occupation of Upper Canada because they simply are unable to supply themselves. The supply lines are cut. Probably one of the most important things for Ohioans is that the Indian chief Tecumseh is killed at the Battle of the Thames. And what this does is it destroys and really breaks the backbone of the Indian-British alliance in Upper Canada. And for Ohioans, all throughout 1812 and 1813, there's a great fear that when the British attempt first to get to Presque Isle, they don't go by Lake Erie. They go around 
the western edge of Lake Erie by Fort Meigs and Fort Stevenson, and they're going to take Presque Isle by land. Through Ohio. Exactly. And that causes a great deal of fear and concern among Ohioans who are, who are living out here. And the Indian-British alliance was, uh, was a scary thing for Ohioans. With the, with the breaking of this alliance, that fades away. And that's really, really important if we're looking at the impact of the Battle of Lake Erie. What does it do? Uh, it, it, it begins the process of getting the British out of Upper Canada. Fort Detroit, as a matter of fact, is surrendered the very next day uh, because they have nothing left. They have no supplies. And it, it's important to note, on the one hand, the Battle of Lake Erie is such an important part in this story. Unfortunately, we don't go on for the rest of 1813 and 1814 winning everything. We still lose some battles in Upper Canada and on the Great Lakes. We do have some give and take back and forth, but this is a pinnacle, pivotal moment in the War of 1812. Perry's naval career continues. He's one of the premier sailors in the U.S. Navy. He's still a very famous person, and he's sent down to South America, a number of issues we're having with South American countries. And in 1819, he's sent down to sign an anti-piracy agreement with President Simon Bolivar in Venezuela. On the way back, the schooner that he's in, uh, the men become sick with yellow fever. The men, including Commodore Perry. He's on board the USS John Adams, and he arrives uh, in Trinidad and Tobago for medical assistance. And there he dies on August 23, 1819. Following his death, um, he was 34 years old. He actually died on his 34th birthday. He accomplished an incredible amount, but he becomes such a hero. And there's so many different monuments and parties and cities. The city of Perrysburg, Ohio. Uh, population 20 plus thousand on the Maumee River right off of US 75 just south of Toledo is named after him. His efforts in the war would lead to 200 plus years of peace and prosperity between our nation and the nation of Canada. We spoke with Jason Anderson one last time to talk about some of these statues and national remembrances of Oliver Hazard Perry including the famous Perry Victory Monument the giant Doric column that stands on Putten Bay, 352 feet into the sky, taller than the Statue of Liberty, still the world's tallest Doric column, built between 1912 and 1915. It's the tallest monument in Ohio, and it's really the fourth largest in the country behind the Washington Monument, the Gateway Arch, and the San Jacinto Monument in Texas. There's a number of remembrances of Commodore Perry, um, what are some of the most notable ways the government remembers him and some of the ways that we can still uh, honor Perry even today? Very soon after the Battle of Lake Erie in September of 1813, Congress uh, strikes a medal, orders a medal to be made in his honor. And it's a very large coin medal. And it's a, it's, it's a very, very awesome thing. Perry's bust is on the front and an image of the Battle of Lake Erie is on the reverse side. There are many monuments that are made. Presque Isle has one. There's one in... Uh, Rhode Island in his hometown. Probably the most notable was one designed and made 
as a traveling monument. It was in Cleveland for a while, and it was in um, kind of in the, in the western part of the state for a while. It now resides in the National Park Visitor Center on Putin Bay. It was a marble monument, and it was replicated, and it, the replica is actually at Fort Huntington Park, which is right downtown Cleveland, which is one of those uh, obscure places that many people have been past but never realized what it is. And it's right next to City Hall overlooking the stadium. And this is a, a, an awesome bronze monument uh, with Perry at the top pointing, you know, his, the great battle flag is over his shoulder. Uh, some small sailors are, are with him on the monument. It's that scene from him leaving the Lawrence and, yep, yep. and making his way to the Niagara. Right. It's, it's a great statue there in downtown Cleveland. So the most famous of which is the Perry Victory Monument that we discussed earlier in the episode, um, which stands in Putin Bay. It stands, you know, 350 feet tall. Um, why is it called? It's called the Perry Victory and International Peace Memorial. Um, what was with that that t- that title and, and kind of what does that giant monument on the lake symbolize? One of the most, imp- if not the most important thing that comes out of the Battle of Lake Erie and then subsequently the War of 1812, but because of the Battle of Lake Erie, is the continual, open, peaceful border between the United States and Canada. And that, that in a day and age where borders are very important and, and great discussion is made about border security, this is something that we absolutely cannot take for granted. Because of what Perry does, this, this monument on, on Putin Bay really exemplifies this open, continual state of peace between two foreign countries that at at one time in 1812 were at war with one another. And it continues to be the largest open, free border of any place in the world. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon So many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation for the Battle of Lake Erie uh, We look at Jason Anderson has an incredible essay we'll put up on the website and on our Facebook Um, It's a short read, it's only 30 pages or so and it really is, is an excellent job called Tiger on the Lake by Jason Anderson, uh, which we use kind of as a guide for our episode. And also a book, uh, a wonderful book called The Naval War of 1812, written by someone you might have heard of, Theodore Roosevelt. It's his very first book, published in 1882. And Teddy Roosevelt discusses all of the naval battles and strategies um, in the War of 1812. It's a great book, one of the many great books written by uh, our former president, Ted Roosevelt. That's going to do it for today. Uh, we want to thank Jason Anderson from Hoban High School, all the efforts that he does, and we're sure to have him back on a future episode. 
Um, but his excitement uh, for the Battle of Lake Erie and his excitement for Ohio history in general, uh, his classroom was a delight to record and surrounded by all these maps and pictures and pictures of Perry and and um, it's just a great classroom and those students are so lucky to to have him working there since 2001. Uh, so we want to thank Jason. That'll do it. Join us next week, episode five. We'll look at America's biggest World War One hero, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, who was Columbus's first major national celebrity. We'll look at his crazy life story, how many times he cheated death, and we'll also talk with Warren Mott of Mott's Military Museum. That does it for this week. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes and Stitcher. Check out our Instagram, Ohio V the World Podcast. Check us out on Facebook. Join the discussion if you've got something you think we should be talking about or an episode you think could be really interesting, a topic, something like that. Let us know. Shout out, of course, to our opening uh, theme music from our friends Forrest and the Evergreens. Check out their album from last year, Young Funk. Um, They're still playing around town. They're playing all over the region. And you can find them at forcingtheevergreens.com. Thanks again, everybody. We'll see you next week. Don't forget to share the podcast with your friends and let people know it's Ohio versus the world. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.